Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for tuning in. This is Craig Soden. Thinking about gender with regards to culture, history, and religion is extraordinarily important for anyone who wishes to be a part of creating a better future. How we discuss gender matters and how young people are taught to think about gender is a process that should always be ongoing. Kaya Oaks' book, The Defiant Metal, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World, is about how women are expected to be many things. They should be young enough, but not too young. Old enough, but not too old. Creative, but not crazy. Passionate, but not angry. They should be fertile and feminine and self-reliant, not barren or butch or solitary. Women, in other words, are caught between social expectation and a much more complicated reality. Kaya Oaks is the author of four books, most uh, recently including The Nuns Are All Right and Radical Reinvention. Her fifth book, The Defiant Middle, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World, is out now from Broadleaf Books, and it is this book that is the topic of our conversation. The book draws on the wisdom of women mystics and explores how transitional eras, or living in marginalized female identities, can be both spiritually challenging and wonderfully freeing, ultimately resulting in a reinvented way of seeing the world and changing it. You can find Kaya Oaks online at oakstown.org and on Twitter at Kaya Oaks. Thank you so much for listening. Kaya Oaks, thank you so much for joining me today for a conversation. It's great to be with you. I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself to our listeners, however you see fit. Sure. Um, my name is Kaya Oaks, and I teach writing at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, where I teach creative nonfiction and also um, expository and research writing. And I live in the Bay Area, which is where I grew up. And I am a journalist and essayist and author of books about the intersections of religion and feminism and culture and politics and lots of other fun stuff. Wonderful. That's really interesting that you are a lifelong Bay Area person. I'd imagine you've seen a tremendous shift in the region over the last, you know, number of years, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, it's totally unrecognizable in some ways. Um, The campus at Berkeley even has changed dramatically since I started teaching there, just because they're constantly tearing down um, earthquake unsafe buildings (laughs) and trying to replace them. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, you know, I found you through the world of religious studies and higher education through our mutual friend, Dr. Liz Bucar at Northeastern University in Boston. And so I was delighted to make that connection through Dr. Bucar with your work and your work is brand new to me. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about where this interest in thinking, speaking and writing about religion specifically originates. Like, how did you become interested in these areas that you write about? I had a very unusual kind of winding path to um, 
becoming a religion writer. Mm-hmm. I was originally a music critic um, and oh, I cool. wrote, I was an arts journalist. And so my first nonfiction book is that came out I, I, 12 years ago, I think uh, was about indie music and the whole DIY movement of the nineties and early two thousands. And then somewhere in there, I decided I was interested in particularly examining Catholicism because I grew up Catholic and I went to Catholic schools, but I kind of took a break from it for 20 odd years. And I got back interested in it because I discovered the stories of the Catholic worker movement Mm -hmm. and Dorothy Day, who was mysteriously left out of my Catholic education. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Dorothy Day was a journalist herself and somebody who also, um, you know, thought about religion as being interwoven with her political beliefs. And so that really appealed to me. And I, I decided to write and think about um, about how religion intersects with our lives today. I love that you're interested in music as well. I have another podcast too about a Canadian punk band. And, uh, you know, that, that whole scene and era of me, uh, for me is super important as well. Like, and I grew up working at record stores and music venues and playing in bands. And then, so mm-hmm. I, I love that we sort of have a, a love of uh, underground DIY punk and rock and roll in our backgrounds as well. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's not that common and it's, I've found in the uh, religion world, there's not that many old punks. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> so. love it. Yeah. I'm going to shout out my friend. Vicki Brennan too. Uh, she's a <laughs> professor in uh, Vermont and she's super into punk rock as well. So hi, Vicki. Um, so you have a brand new book that I have been reading. Uh, it's called The Defiant Middle, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World. And I just have to tell you something here really quick about my experience of reading this book. For the last two or so years, I have struggled tremendously with my own attention span with regards mm. to reading books. And I opened up your book and I was like thinking, okay, I'm going to get five pages in here. I'm going to get five pages in there. But before you know it, it I had read like 75 pages in a row, which is the longest streak of reading that I have had since 2019. (laughs) So your book is like sort of recalibrating my reading mind. (laughs) And I just wanted you to know that, that as a person who has struggled to read tremendously for the past couple of years, that your book captivated me. Um, So In that book, you talk about women who are young, but not too young, creative, but not crazy, passionate, but not angry. And so I'm the father of a young girl, and Mm -hmm. I'm also a man who has had friendships with women who have told me these types of stories in blunt detail and personal conversations. But this book has been tremendously impactful so far for the reality of women balancing in those in-between spaces. So the spectrum of like social expectation comes into play here. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about your own coming to terms with your understanding of this middle of which you speak. Well, the book originated in an essay that I wrote for the website of On Being, the podcast Mm. uh, with Krista Tippett. Great podcast. Uh, Yeah, she used to run essays on the website and uh, I wrote a few. And at one point, I think it was when I was in 40, mid 40s, 
late 40s. Um, so just a few years ago, I wrote an essay for her about um, how discovering, so I discovered that Hildegard von Bingen started writing books in her 40s. Oh, cool. Um, and that, so that was really interesting to me. And it led me to this kind of argument or idea that if we look at people like Hildegard and um, Joan of Arc and <clears throat> Julian of Norwich and other medieval uh, women, that they can help us to sort of understand uh, liminal periods in our own lives when we're caught between expectations and reality. And that essay was particularly about women in, uh, you know, of in their 40s and early 50s. And it went surprisingly viral religion writing usually does not <laughs> mm, yes. um but i had a lot of people were sharing it and talking about it and and so it tapped into this thirst that people have for language and um ideas about how to navigate those uh spaces between expectations and reality at different phases of life Gotcha. I'm curious about the sections as well, because you have old, young, crazy, things like that. So like, tell me about how the, the, the content and the sections of the book came, came into being. Like, how did you develop like the organizational structure of these different sections? Well, it was very random. So I wouldn't use this example in one of my own classes for, but I do, I try to be honest with my students about my own writing process, but um, I signed the book contract in February of um, 2020. So we all know, would know what happened next. Yes. Which is that, yeah. So I was uh, during the first COVID lockdown, I was, um, I did, I had the book contract and I knew sort of what the theme of the book was going to be, but I didn't have an outline. I had a sort of rough idea, but uh, so I went down to my garage and I was riding my exercise bike, <laughs> mm. like we all were during the first COVID days. <laughs> and, um, and I just thought about, you know, what are some general ways in which women are, are expected general things that women are expected to be. So I thought, you know, fertile, um, nurturing, caring, you know, uh, someone who's, uh, takes care of other people, self-sacrificing, uh, calm, collected, all of that stuff. And so the chapter titles are sort of like roughly sort of lumping these different expectations into different chapters. Wonderful. Um, are there any like catalyst moments from your life that sort of like reinforced the, like the, the way the book came together? Like, were there any like moments of your life where it's like, oh, right, this happened to me. So this informs my understanding. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. I, I turned 50, um, right. As I started to write it. So I definitely was feeling that, um, you know, I had the, the pandemic birthday and <laughs> you actually, mm -hmm. cause I just had another one. Um, and, uh, and then also before I turned 50, I, I had, 
some pretty serious health issues that ended in me having surgery. And it changed a lot of the way I think about gender and how we define gender because yeah. I, I lost my uh, reproductive organs. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, one of the things we they don't tell you uh, before you have that surgery is that there are lots of trans men out there who've had the same surgery. And I happened to meet one of them pre-surgery and he and I were talking and he was super helpful and kind and thoughtful. And it it just, again, helped me to think that a lot of how we define gender and what we expect of gender is so uh, divorced from um, the reality of bodies. Mm -hmm. And, And so that we need to step back and kind of rethink that a little bit more. Yeah, I found that section of the book particularly moving as well and very honest and um, forthright, which is, I mean, did did you feel at all strange about talking about that in the book, something that was so personal to you? Was that a hard decision to make or were you like, this is definitely what I have to say? (laughs) Uh, Yes and no. I'm very mindful of the fact that women are often expected to write about trauma and to perform trauma Mm. in our writing. And I think that that's um, kind of dangerous in some ways. Um, But I also knew that there wasn't a larger conversation about the issue of hysterectomy surgery or oophrectomy, which is ovary removal. And I was so unprepared for it that I wanted to be frank about it so that other women who might be facing or any other people who might be facing the same surgery would know that it's, you know, it's, it changes you, but it's not the end of the world and your life goes on. Um, So, yeah, so it was, it was a little back and forth of like, do I really want to go there? And I'm going there. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you that I've already recommended the book to somebody um, that I know who is doing the exact surgery that oh, you wow. had. So it, it it mattered to me that I found that because it helped me to possibly be a better friend in that moment. That's great. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you start the book, everything on this podcast comes back to religion for me. So I'm going to kind of circle back to religion here and there as we mm-hmm. talk, but the book starts in church. And I'm curious about your, a little bit more about your religious situatedness. And if you can tell me about the reason or reasons behind the choice of starting the book and hooking the reader in church. Mm -hmm. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I was raised in a a Roman, an Irish Catholic family. I would say Roman Catholic, but Irish Catholics are are different um, than Roman Catholics because there's so much enculturation of the religion in the family. And um, much like other people with immigrant backgrounds, um, the experience of religion change changes when you come to the United States. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, so anyway, I, I say that as background because I write for America magazine, which is the national magazine of the Jesuits. And I write for Commonweal, which is another Catholic edited magazine. Um, And when I write for uh, other places, I'm often asked by editors to write pieces about the Catholic church. Um, So it does play a big part in my life. And I wanted 
to my publisher is um, Lutheran, mm -hmm. which is pretty funny when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just, it is. Yeah. So, um, but they are affiliated with the ELCA, which is the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, which is the progressive, very progressive Lutherans. And so I knew I was going to be able to talk about things that I couldn't talk about with a Catholic publisher. And that was very liberating. Um, and it allowed me also to be vocally critical of some things about the Catholic Church that I'm not always able to write about in other places. Wow. So, yeah, so that was part of the positioning. That actually delights me tremendously that you were able to have that experience of, um, you know, writing in a different style and saying some things that you wouldn't otherwise get the chance to. That actually really makes me happy. And it kind of reminds me of like my punk rock days, you know? <laughs> yeah, the Lutheran punks. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about like uh, some general imagery from church, right? In the book, you write about the imagery and purity of Mary and having grown up in the church and waxed and waned a little bit, it sounds like in your own practice over the years, but also being raised with this really specific image of purity and expectations growing up. I'm wondering if you can contrast the original image of Mary with what you discover later on in life about Mary. Yeah, I was asked um, by Religion News Service a couple of years ago, uh, one of the editors there asked me to write a reflection on Mary for Mother's Day. And I was like, oh, oh, no, I don't want to write about this like meek and mild, you know, plaster statue that I met yeah. as a child. And so um, so what I ended up writing about was a lot of what go went in went into the book, which is the idea of reclaiming Mary as a revolutionary, because if you read the words to the Magnificat, it's very political. And I, I recently was on a podcast hosted by two uh, people who grew up evangelical, mm -hmm. and they told me something really interesting, which is in their churches, they didn't read the second half of the Magnificat. Mm -hmm. So the first, the first half is all about Mary being humble and, you know, bowing before the Lord uh, who's chosen her. And then in the second half, she gets into God wants to, you know, <laughs> wants the rich to be sent away hungry and the poor to be fed. And, and so they, they were sort of got given this edited version of her. And so my own, uh, reading of feminist theology on Mary and particularly Elizabeth Johnson's book, Truly Our Sister, um, which is a re-examination of Mary. Um, it really helped me a lot with um, divorcing myself from that kind of uh, inattainable ideal Mary. I love that. Well, and I'm getting a little bit of ideas for where I can expand my own learning here with a couple of titles there. So wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, something that really captures my attention about this book is you referred earlier to your interests in Hildegard, Julian of Norwich, Joan of Arc. So you have this medieval undercurrent within this book, which is super fascinating. And I'm wondering just what specifically it is about like the medieval period that captivates your attention for um, writers and for readers here now in the year 2022, like how do you feel about this time period and relating these very distant past figures with readers in the here and now? Uh, to me, it's just so fascinating how much we do and don't have in common. And also, um, 
I give a shout out to another new book called The Bright Ages by two historians. And they're they're sort of rethinking the medieval era as oh, well. Cool. And um, I really, when I discovered um, Hildegard, Julian of Norwich became... Um, as you've read the book, she became really important to the book as well, uh, because I was thinking, like many people during the pandemic, about isolation, and because she lived in an anchor hold, which is a cell attached to the side of a church that she really lived the pain during several waves of the plague which she may have actually had herself mm. um she's really became you know kind of the patron saint of the pandemic for a lot of people but she also was a mystic and so were Joan of Arc and Hildegard and Marjorie Camp and many medieval women so they were visionaries and today we wouldn't have I mean Everybody, you know, probably has their own private visions that they don't share. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was really interesting that all of these women tapped into that visionary side of themselves because of the circumstances that they were under of living through plagues and wars and so on and so forth. It felt very familiar. How were they sort of outliers within the culture in which they lived? Because we we know their names today. So obviously they their legacies live on. But what did they have to do in order to stand out amongst what was expected of them in that time and place? Well, literacy was a big part of that. So uh, the fact that a lot, most women could not read or write. Uh, Joan of Arc's trial transcript transcript is how we come to know her and who she, what she thought and what she said. She herself could not read or write as far as we know. And so that lack of ability to communicate meant that women relied on other people, usually men, to translate their ideas. So someone like Julian, who's the author of the first book by a woman written in the English language, you know, is, is very unusual in that way. Um, but I think that what they all represent is, you know, as going with the theme of the book, is this kind of defiance, defiance of church leaders, um, Joan and Hildegard both, you know, spoke out against corruption in the church. And Joan of Arc was, of course, killed um, because of her visions and uh, her prophetic voice. And then, um, you know, Julian being defiant by exiting the world and choosing to step away from it. So, yeah, all of them have that kind of streak of counterculturalism. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love it. Well, there's a term in the book that you mentioned a couple of times that I have never heard of, and that's selva oscura. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can just tell me a little bit about this term because I've never heard it before. It's from, I picked it up from the, the stories of King Arthur <clears throat> and, um, and the story, I mean, there are a lot of medieval stories of questing knights. I just saw the Green Man by or the Green Knight, by the way, which is fantastic. Mm. It was a great re-envisioning of this whole era and of quests and just a really great movie. But um these questing knights would often, uh, the famous one is Lancelot. So he goes mad in the woods and, and uh, questing knights would often enter the woods and then go, go crazy. And um, in the, 
in Dante's Inferno, it's referred to the dark wood is referred to as the, that he enters as well is called the Salva Obscura. So like it's the place where you go and get lost when you're at a transition point in your life. And I just, I thought that idea was so perfect. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, so jumping forward to today, you refer to the hemming in of social expectations regarding youth, age, anger, fertility, independence. And it also got me thinking about the time and place and the challenges of right now in the last mm-hmm. couple of years that we've all been living through. You referred to the pandemic earlier. And it reminds me of sort of like the unevenness of household expectations of parenting, et cetera, which has been widely reported during the pandemic about homeschooling and everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it tends to fall more squarely on the shoulders of women, which has been reported and demonstrated over and over again for the last few years. And it got me thinking about how amazingly it seems like a reinvention for women is going but how, when the going gets really tough, the old ingrained expectations spring right back up, often exponentially. And I'm wondering if you can tell me about what you've noticed during the pandemic with relation to some of the themes in the book with regards to gender expectations and things like that. One of the first surprises was when we uh, had to move to Zoom that my, uh, I have many colleagues with young children and that all my female colleagues with young children would have, the kids would be crawling all over them during meetings and interrupting them. And my male colleagues with young children, the the children were never seen or heard. So Mm. somebody else, (laughs) and no offense, they're great guys, but somebody else was taking care of the kids at that moment. And it was most likely their wives. Um, So that was really interesting, but I think it's a metaphor also for how there's this sort of like, I'll take care of it. I think again about that viral video of the, the guy who's on the newscast and like his, the baby comes in and then the toddler comes in. Right. And and then the wife comes in like like, screaming. in. (laughs) It was so perfect. Right. Cause it captures again, behind the scenes, but also like the woman sort of like, oh, you know, crap, I got to take care of this. And yeah. for and for us, sometimes that is really an issue of uh, deconstructing your own uh, d- tendency to be that person who rushes in and puts out the fire or who, you know, who takes care of cleaning up, like no one else is cleaning this mess. I guess it's my job. And I'm married myself. Um, I d- no kids, but I'm married to a dude and he, he and I talked a lot about deconstructing our own stereotypes of gender during the pandemic. Like, you know, I'm expected to cook and he's expected to take care of the yard. And, you know, why is that? Why do we do these things? And so we really worked on reversing some of those, those ideas within our own minds and changing our relationship. Wonderful. Well, I'm also the parent of a young girl and the youth section is powerful because I'm a teacher and a dad. So like my life is constantly surrounded by youth. And when I look at the generation of people behind me, 
I see hugely powerful ideas about how to make the world a better place. So you bring up some very famous names in the book, like Greta Thunberg and Malala Yousafzai. Mm-hmm. Um, they inspire me because I know they will offer far more to the world than I really ever could or will. And I'm wondering what you learned about being considered too young to get world leaders to take someone seriously. I'm curious about your thoughts there. That chapter sort of gets uh, into Joan of Arc too. So I want to start with her just because um, she is a mirror held up to, I mean, thank God, you know, Malala survived, but you know, they, the, Taliban tried to she was shot in the head um as we know and it was because she was very dangerous and threatening and Joan of Arc same thing and I I would bet that Greta Thunberg's family has probably had death threats and scary you know some scary stuff that we may not have heard about but it's interesting because uh, we, and I was talking about this with my students too, with Gen Z, you know, a lot of people are sort of, oh, they're, they're going to fix these problems, right? Yeah. <laughs> like they'll fix the environment. They'll fix democracy. They'll, they'll, they'll go vote and fix, you know, fix politics. And, and so there's this tendency to dump, you know, things onto the next generation. And I think they're getting it really bad like worse than we did in gen x or than millennials did um but we also kind of expect them dismiss them as immature so there's this mutual thing of like fix the world for us but also you're too young to understand these things Mm -hmm. and so young adults and young women live in a dichotomy too. Um, they live in a liminal space where they're neither grown up nor children. And that's a hard place to be. Um, and also it's put, we put a lot of pressure on them. I think it's ridiculous that we expect 18 year olds to know what they want to do with the rest of their lives. And when they go to college, you know, choose a major that will, you know, help that you can uh, make money from rather than, you know, take two years and explore different classes. And the pressure to know from when you apply to college to when you graduate exactly how your life is going to turn out, I I find very problematic too. Yeah. You know, and I, I think about this a lot as well, because whenever I see somebody like Greta, I see somebody actually trying to make the world inhabitable for generations to come when the current generation who has caused so many of the issues are long gone, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that she just makes powerful people feel in- incredibly insecure because they know how complicit they are. So mm-hmm. in order to, uh, you know, you know, numb themselves and keep themselves numb, they dismiss her because they know in their hearts that they are failures and that they mm-hmm. will never live up to any kind of substantive expectation. So I see somebody like that as like just calling out the deepest insecurities of current world leaders. Does that make sense? It does. And one thing I really like about, my students is their unwillingness to tolerate 
bullshit excuses from people, yeah. whether that's me <laughs> yeah. or, um, you know, their parents or, but more, they tend to be very blunt and they're very sarcastic, but it's irony and sarcasm being used in the same way that Gen X did, which is to deflect back at people. So like the whole, okay, boomer thing. Yeah. I thought that was hilarious. I did too. I loved it. <laughs> because if there's one thing that, you know, Gen Xers, millennials, <laughs> Gen Z have in common is that we do, we really hate what boomers have done, which is to leave behind this gigantic mess and wash their hands of it. And um, so I do think Greta's, you know, people make fun of her. And unfortunately, a lot of that is tied up in uh, ableism and, and fears of people who are on the spectrum who do tend to be more blunt. Um, but that she, when she confronts people and says, you know, how dare you? Uh, and it, they know that they did something wrong and they're not willing to admit it. So, yeah, I think that that's another part of the of young women is that they can be very threatening and dangerous because they are not willing to accept the status quo a lot of the time. Yeah. You know, the youth section also included interesting details about young people coming to learn about the lies of purity culture within religion, which I found to be incredibly fascinating for obvious reasons for the podcast. But, you know, they, they come to understand these lies once they are trapped within marriages. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm curious about some of the moments that stand out to you when learning about the inner workings of the purity culture movement and reporting on that as well. One of the things that's been interesting about becoming a religion journalist is how many people I've met who grew up in evangelicalism and then have either stayed in it and tried to make a change, kind of like some of us have done with Catholicism, or um, left and converted to something else or are nuns, N-O-N-E-S, which was the subject of my last book, um, or they're ex-evangelicals. Anyway, you know, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a whole landscape, but one thing I've learned from them and I found really interesting is how purity culture really mirrored and, and took from um, the Catholic obsession with things like virgin martyrs. Yeah. Um, so women saints who died to protect their virginity versus male saints who died to protect their country or their town or, you know, something like, that and so um so it's the parallels between purity culture's emphasis on saving yourself from marriage and protecting your sexuality it's really about men because it's it's taking the responsibility that men have not to you know, like the, the obsession with what people are wearing. So if if a woman's um boobs being you know visible in a low cut shirt bothers you that's your problem not hers yeah and that that whole putting it like men are sort of like purity culture and and catholicism have this in common which is that they the responsibility of men is to not um be you know to to control themselves is put on women not on men and so that's tied up in so many things like rape culture and um how we handle sexual violence and sexual harassment and stuff like that it's all the onus is on women you know why did you walk home at night why did you go to that party rather than the men so that's one thing that purity culture 
uh, that stood out to me about that. And then also just how long it takes for people to disentangle those ideas and that it's a lifetime, like I was talking about earlier of um, when you're in a, a heterosexual relationship, how you really have to work against the expectations of a normative uh, heterosexual relationship and deconstruct your own ideas of how your gender is supposed to act. It's the same thing with sex mm-hmm. uh, for people who grew up in purity culture, that the guilt and the shame. And hey, Catholics have that too. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, um, thinking back on on the, the big picture of the book here, I'm wondering if there has been anything that's happened past the publication of the book that you wish were in it? Are you still thinking about these ideas and are like wondering about what you would put in it if you were writing it now? Yeah, I, I, I mean, the pandemic again has exposed how a lot of these gendered expectations are still very entrenched. And I think that not only makes, you know, the, the things I was writing about here relevant, but it also, Uh, opens the path for a lot more people to be discussing and talking about these issues, both privately and in the public square. And for academics, um, one of the things that's really important is to remember that that too much of the time academics write for other academics, and that a lot of the ideas that I discovered about theology and history and gender studies are things that should be written about for a wider audience. And so um, I, I do hope, you know, to return to some of these topics, but I think that idea of deconstructing our own I, I'm sorry, I hate the word deconstructing because <laughs> I, no, I went to grad school in the time when that meant Derrida. So when I yes. hear, when I hear ex-evangelicals talking about it now, I'm like, I can't get out of that. Um, but so uh, I, I would say self-examination, <laughs> self-examining our own gender performance, as Judith Butler puts it, how do we act out our gender? How do we inhabit our gender? And how young adults are like I just throwing that all out the window Mm -hmm. and are just like I don't know what my gender is and that's okay you know I want to it's like they are so at peace with um being in the in a liminal gender space that I would love to watch what happens with that and continue to think about that I wrote a little bit about it in the book but I think it's going to just become more and more commonplace You have an opening quote in the book that on the dedication page that reads, quote, women in time will come to do much. This was said by Mary Ward, who lived from 1585 to 1645. And I'm wondering if you can tell me your thoughts on this quote as we uh, kind of bring this conversation in for landing. The quote is one that has meant a lot to me for a long time. Mary Ward was the leader of a religious, she wanted to start a religious order uh, that was a female version of the Jesuits. So it would have been an order where women were teachers and they went out into the world. And particularly she wanted women to teach other women how to read and write. And she was imprisoned for that. And she had a very difficult life, but she continued to, you know, persist. And that quote, 
I think the fact that it was said by somebody who sacrificed a lot of her own self in order to improve the lives of other women is um, something that still means a lot to me today, but also I think that reveals how much work we still have to do. Gotcha. Well, I'm wondering, Kaya, if you can tell people where they can find your work if they want to follow along with what you do in the future and uh, get to know your work a little bit better. Sure. So I, like many journalists, I'm sucked in by Twitter a lot of the time, more than any other social media platform. So I'm there as at Kaya Oaks, K-A-Y-A-O-A-K-E-S. My website is, uh, if you just Google me, it'll be the top search result. Books are available anywhere books are sold. And um, I have a little faculty page at UC Berkeley that showcases my teaching. So I'm all over the place, but I'm on the internet. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've had an absolute blast chatting with you. Thanks for having me. About this fantastic book, The Defiant Middle. Everybody go check it out. So uh, thank you so much for being here. Happy to join you. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg.